Hello, educators and learners, and welcome to the Homeroom with Sal podcast, brought to you by Khan Academy. We're an educational technology nonprofit dedicated to bringing a world-class education to anyone, anywhere. And Sal is our founder. I'm not Sal Khan. I'm David Reinstrom. I'm on the content team, and I'm here to introduce today's show. Sal, or the occasional guest host, presents the Homeroom with Sal and Khan Academy Ed Talks live stream shows on YouTube and Facebook, where they interview notable folks from the worlds of education, technology, finance, entertainment, and more. We've taken some of our favorite conversations from the live show and turned them into a podcast. Without further ado, here's this week's show. Today, I am excited to welcome Judy Human. She is an international disability rights activist. She's also an author. She's written more than one book, but her latest is Rolling Warrior, the incredible, sometimes awkward, true story of a rebel girl on wheels who helped spark a revolution. And this is a book aimed for for, uh, kids who are about 10 years old, so that's a good space. If you have kids on your holiday lists, uh, take a look for this option. Welcome, Judy. Hi, so happy to be with you. Thanks for joining us. So I let's take it quickly. Off. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, in, in addition to that book, the original book, which came out in uh, 2020, is a, for adults, and it's called. It's not that there's anything pornographic in it. It's just the the um, the writing is more for adults. So it's called Being Human an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist. And um, one of the differences between this book and The Rolling Warrior is we had a group of young people work with us on the transition from the adult book to the youth book. And so you'll see not only is the cover difference, the title is different, the layout is different, the chapter names are different. The story is essentially the same but it's for a younger reading audience. And then for all of you who are Japanese readers, um, the Japanese have come out with a translation of being human and here it is. So if any of you are in Japan or know people in Japan, uh, same book in Japanese. Um, I was very happy that people that I knew in Japan from the disability community uh, wanted to translate the book. And you can get the book um, also in Great Britain. They have, um, this is their version, same book. Sorry, guys, a little more boring cover, but same material <laughs> inside. And if I could also say, um, I'm one of the people in uh, an Academy nominated film uh, called Crip Camp. And uh, I think Crip Camp is a really important film and it's probably for um, 10 or 11 year olds and up. Um, and it, it's R rated. So some schools have not been able to show it because of that until you know the upper grades of high school. But certainly all of you should be watching it um, it's a great documentary. It's won the Peabody Award and many others. And it is, as I said, a documentary. And I think from an educational perspective, well, it's not talking about pedagogy. 
it um, has a number of people like myself who had our disabilities when we were younger. And I think it allows you to, in part, see some of the differences that existed in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s before there was any legislation in the United States that was meaningful and made it um, a requirement that disabled children go to school. Excellent. Well, you just uh, took a, a whole lot of my recommendations. <laughs> I recommend all those things, but, but particularly I found um, Crip Camp to be an excellent piece of work and also recommend it. So speaking of your story, let's start there. Tell us a little bit about how your experiences growing up influenced who you are today. Well, I was 18 months old when I had polio. And I learned when I was 36 that a doctor had told my parents that he recommended they put me in an institution when I was two. And the reason I tell you I didn't learn about this till I was way an adult was my parents never wanted me to know this, which I think was a very good thing actually. Um, but they're, they're German, Germ they were, they passed away, German Jewish uh, refugees. And um, so for any of you who know the history, um, under Hitler and the, and the Holocaust, the first group of people that they were killing were disabled people. And so um, my parents, obviously, because they also lost all their families, were um, reconstructing and starting a new family. So we were on the road to, from my parents' perspective, raising me like they intended to raise me if I didn't have a disability. But they began to realize that that wasn't really the case. I mean, accessibility in the 40s, 50s, 60s started changing in Brooklyn and New York City, but still not significantly. I started using a wheelchair. I used braces and crutches, but I wasn't really able to walk independently. My arms, I'm a polio quadriplegic. My arms are not very strong. So I wasn't uh, using a motorized wheelchair because they didn't even exist then. They started slowly coming in in the 60s and then more in the 70s. And I did get a motorized wheelchair in the late 60s and I've used one ever since. Um, and we could go back to that. But for those of you who work with children who have physical disabilities, mobility is something which is very important. And um, it's sometimes people look at using a motorized wheelchair as something which is not going to advance your strength. But I think the reality is, is that we really need to look at what children need. And one of the things children need is to be able to be as independent as possible with their friends. And also, you know, I didn't get a motorized wheelchair till my late teens, 2021. So I had never gone across the street by myself. I oh, had wow. never just gone out and walked around the neighborhood. I couldn't take a bus. I couldn't take a train. They weren't accessible. All of those things, you know, from an educational perspective, kids beginning as they're getting older to go across the street and visit a neighbor and as they're getting even older 
taking a bus to go someplace, um, being able to go to the store by themselves. Those are things I couldn't do by myself. Now, of course, I can. But I really think, you know, when we think about education, there's the classroom, but there's life. And life also does impact. So um, when my mother took me to school, the principal denied me the right to go to school because he said I would be a fire hazard. So this oh, again wow. was before we had any of these laws in the US. Yeah. And so I was home. I wasn't like homeschooled because there wasn't anything like that at that time. My mother was teaching me. And then in the first grade, a teacher started coming to the house twice a week, once for an hour, once for an hour and a half. So until the middle of the fourth grade, I was getting two and a half hours a week of educational training. Then I went to segregated education and special ed classes. And quite frankly, they were not comparable to the same classes for non-disabled children. And uh, then I went to college and wanted to be a teacher, um, was denied my teaching license because in writing they said I couldn't walk. So then I sued the Board of Education and the judge remanded the case back to the Board of Ed who did grant me another medical and I did get my teaching license and I taught in New York for three years. But during all that time, I was learning. And when you look at Crip Camp and read the book, you'll get a chance to understand what many of us were going through and still go through. And that is discrimination that we experience and what both our families and we as individuals, as we're growing older, what responsibilities we need to take for ourselves and how we individually and more collectively uh, have been working together, not only to improve the system, but also to give ourselves stability and confidence. Because, you know, one of the issues that this is not just a disability issue, but race or religion, which is different, or sexual orientation, whatever. Um, and disabled people come from all of those categories, black, Asian, indigenous, Latino, gay, straight, Muslim, whatever. So I think what's important about work for those of you who are doing anything in education is really to understand some of the very important additional issues that is, are beneficial for families and disabled kids to be able to get the kind of support they need so that assuming they're getting a decent education, they are not fearful of going out into the world, getting a job and being competitive. Yeah, that issue of establishing your own independence is such a key, both psychological issue and uh, issue that we all go through growing up, but it has different kind of elements as we're thinking about learners with disabilities. When you think about students same. in- Yeah, yeah, right. right, right, yeah. 
thinking about schools, as as many of the folks uh, who are joining us today are, you know, related to either schools or, or teaching and elements, just kind of broadly, how do you think about the what are the needs of learners with disabilities in schools? What should folks that are in schools be thinking about in order to ensure that those students get that education that they they need? Well, you know, the word disability is so broad. Yeah. And so there isn't, you know, one approach for all kids. Now, that's also true for non-disabled children. So exactly. I think <laughs> what, we, what we really need to understand is every child is different. And whether or not you have any kids that are defined as having a disability, as I was saying, not all kids learn the same way. And part of what we're needing to do is to enable the teacher to have knowledge and confidence that they can look at what the needs of the child are. And um, I do believe we need to be getting our universities to be doing a better job of teaching teachers and administrators about how to have effective classes and for teachers to have some more knowledge about the types of needs that some students identified with disabilities or not. I mean, when I taught, I, I didn't have, the, there were no children who were identified in my three years of teaching who had disabilities. On the other hand, categorically, quite a number of them did. Um, they had things like learning disabilities or dyslexia at a time when those words weren't even known in the system. Right. You know, I think it's teachers knowing how to teach reading because that's a very big issue um, in younger grades that um, I think phonetic learning is very important and it's been shown to really help children uh, learn to read and also in some cases um, not result in the child needing additional services. But if they do, at least you know that you've clearly been working with the child and the family to help them get the kind of supports that they need. Um, I think having an assistant in a classroom, um, which may happen if you have a disabled student, can be very helpful and trying to have that assistant not just work with the disabled kids. Sometimes it needs to be that way, but I would say by and large, you want the child to be in the classroom and be as integrated and as included as possible. And I think it's not being afraid. I think it's really not only learning about the child, but learning about the disability that the child may have and, you know, really be there because you believe that the child can learn like the other children in your classroom. So I think those are all very important points. And it may mean that you need to, you know, get some literature, look at some of the organizations that are out there that could provide you with assistance. Um, but I think the most important thing is 
that the classrooms of today, meaning now 2021, um, continue to change every year with the diversity in our schools, cultural diversity, language diversity, food diversity. I mean, I'll tell you a story. Um, second year I was teaching. First year I taught special ed and I was an itinerant, which meant the teacher didn't want to teach a class, they asked me. And so I um, was teaching a myriad of classes. The second year I had a second grade class. And um, one day, one of my students, who was a very good student, I really liked her, um, she was kind of having a little rough day. And her mother would bring her to school and pick her up. And so when she came to pick her up this day, I said, you know, could you please speak to Diana and just tell her that, you know, she had a little kind of rambunctious day and just talk to her about it. No big deal. The next morning, her mother said to me, she will not do that again. I had her kneel on rice for three three hours saying oh my the, um, some prayers. I felt terrible because yeah. I had no idea that I'm really, I was not hard with the mother. It was right. just like I knew mother came her to, brought her, bring her to school every day. She was really engaged. So I never said another word. Um, yeah. It's those kinds of things where we need to know more about the cultures of the families. That of the family, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that makes and, sense. What are some things that we can do to you mentioned, you know, if a, the student when the students in the classroom, we want them to integrate uh, with their peers and have those interactions that are so important. Uh, what are things we can do to uh, work with students or that students themselves can do to help make sure that that's happening? I mean, first of all, I think the teacher sets the example. Mm -hmm. And if you are setting an example that this child is not being distinguished, um, they may be getting some assistance, they may be sitting in a different place in the classroom, but it's to um, allow for the students to really uh, learn and respect different ways that children learn. And um, I think, depending on the age, younger children really are pretty into accepting each other. And if there is any bullying going on, I think that's something which really needs to be addressed right away. And that shouldn't be just because typically if somebody is bullying, they're not just going to be bullying the disabled kid. And I think, you know, we're hearing that um, one of the effects of the COVID period is that kids are exhibiting more angry behavior in classrooms right. than before. So I think it's just a mix of what's going on. Some of the universities in your area also have teachers who are knowledgeable about inclusive education. Um, that's something that you also may want to call on. And I hope that you were receiving 
some education in school about working with students who have disabilities. But by and large, I think it's you treat the student like you treat any other student. Um, and that sets an example for the class about what you're expecting through your leadership. Right, right, that makes sense. Um, we have a comment uh, that, that came in from, uh, from uh, Facebook from Cynthia Byloff-Slabaugh who says, I feel we have youth with invisible disabilities, things such as anxiety, panic attacks, social anxiety, this reminded me of your comments, especially now, it seems like some of those are, are there. And those can, can go under the radar in our system. How do we ensure that we're, we're make, making sure we're serving all, all students who may need help? I wish I had an answer or a magic wand. <laughs> I think yeah. um, your, your point is very well taken. And those children have, and youth have always been there. But I do think we are seeing it in a much um, more extreme way. There are more students. And um, it really is a district issue, a principal issue, meaning really looking at social workers and school psychologists and others who need to be there so that as a teacher, you can be given some basic skills on how to be working with students like this who may not be identified as having a disability. Uh, they may need to be identified in order to be able to get appropriate supports, but not to uh, pull them out of a classroom, but rather to make sure that they can get some accommodations that could be helpful. So, you know, they could be anything from extended school, I'm sorry, extended time for testing or I, I really think some of the flaws in our system are now really becoming more apparent, like not having enough school social workers or school psychologists. And you know, if you have time, it's also getting other teachers who can really be working with families on trying to address some of these issues from a fiscal perspective with school boards and city governments and state government. So it's- So that it's leads into my next question. <laughs> Your history of activism is, is so impressive. How do you uh, advise folks to maybe start getting into a little bit of advocacy or activism in their communities? First of all, anybody in education is an activist. <laughs> because that's the way I feel about it. You know, you have, a commitment to working um, in a classroom, knowing that there's all kinds of diversity, families with different income levels, different needs, and in some way, you know, teachers are also a little social workers, right? Yeah, we have lots of responsibilities. Yes. Um, I think some people you know, we'll get active in a union, we'll get active in teacher associations. So for me, the work that I've done in advocacy has typically not been, I mean, I advocate on my own behalf, but the majority of the work that I've done has been collaborating with others who have similar views and objectives. And I think that's really what we're talking about 
is what do we need to do to ensure that children in our classrooms are getting the right education? And in part, that means what are we getting? What do we need as teachers to be able to be as effective as possible? And at the end of the day for disabled children, my belief is children need to be in integrated classrooms. They need to be getting the support so that they are living in the world of today and that the other students also see them as valuable members of the community. And we have a range of people with various forms of disabilities. Some people don't have a good day every day and it may be because of their disability and it may be because of COVID and they're having more acting out, you know, and we need to, I, I very much respect um, the amount of work that goes on for a teacher, but really I think from an advocacy perspective, um, allowing people to have more of an understanding of what we believe can be done and what we need in order to achieve that. Fantastic. So if you did have a magic wand, we'll get back to that magic wand. What are one or two things that you would like to see changed about either schools or legislation about schools or things to, to improve on where we are today? Well, one is that all educators, school board members, administrators, principals, teachers, believe that all disabled children can learn and have the right to learn and that the education system has responsibility to teach. That universities are doing a better job of training teachers, that those teachers are equipped to effectively work in a classroom. And if they have a child or two children or three children, whatever it may be with disabilities, that they feel confident and that they get the support that they need. Um, but I think still too many universities are not training general ed teachers in basic um, education to work with children who have disabilities. And some, some universities are doing better jobs where they're offering like dual degrees, early childhood and primary education, but there's still not enough of that going on. So in, in waving my magic wand, it would be that academics that are teaching for training of teachers really have more knowledge about effective ways of inclusive education, which I also believe really address issues around race. Because I think what we are seeing and have seen for many years now is that the biases that teachers may have towards certain populations of kids may also be resulting in higher rates of suspensions and expulsions. Um, so cultural competency, I think, is really uh, difficult. Honestly, I also think that uh, salaries need to be raised so that people like in Finland and Japan and other countries, that teachers are earning and respected for the work that you're all doing. Um, and I think that's something that is not as strong as it needs to be. And I'm really appreciative of the work that most of you are doing. Well, 
that is the end of our 30 minutes. I really appreciated all those thoughts, particularly I think that's an interesting point about bias, um, being biased across groups and thinking about where that is. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, but thank you more for all of the work you've been doing uh, in, in activism for learners with disabilities. Look forward to seeing what you do next and to picking up your most recent book. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. If you want to hear more of Homeroom with Sal or Khan Academy Ed Talks, subscribe to this podcast and tell a friend. If you want to support the work we do here at Khan Academy, visit khanacademy.org slash donate. We're a nonprofit, and we appreciate your financial support in making sure that our materials can reach as many learners as possible. That's khanacademy.org slash donate. That's our podcast, folks. Your host is Sal Khan. This show is produced by my wonderful Khan Academy co-workers, Kevin Dangor, Stephanie Yamkovenko, Dan Tu, Irene Wang, Anthony Nelson, Felipe Escamilla, Irene Chen, Ken Jones, Fail Lundberg, and me, David Reinstrom. Our intro theme is Time Flux by Revolution Void, and our outro theme is Onward by Poddington Bear.